Keep your Bibles open there to James chapter 2. That's where we're going to be um, studying from today. James chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 5 through 13. Um, and previously in James chapter 2, I, I had mentioned to you that James chapter 2 is a rather significant chapter. Not only in this epistle, but for the Christian faith. And unlike I had mentioned that, unlike the epistles of Paul, John, Peter, uh, James is a book about practical living faith. That's what it is, a book about practical living faith. And James chapter 2 is very doctrinal, um, that it provides additional insight into this historic doctrine of justification by faith. And this doctrine says that a person is justified by God, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, James 2 defines what such faith looks like. What, that, what does that faith look like? Now, if you recall, the last time we were together, we looked at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And in our last lesson, we were introduced to this idea of favoritism or partiality found in verses 1 through 4. And if you look at it as it was broken down, in verse 1 we explored the command against favoritism. And in verses 2 through 4 we looked at the conduct. He described what this favoritism, what this partiality looks like. And I said, you know, one of the things about favoritism is basically a, a simple definition is to esteem one better than another based on either their social status or based on whether their monetary status or whatever. It was something that was being done in the first century church. There was partiality. There was discrimination. Slaves and the poor were highly discriminated against, right? People who had money were esteemed. As a matter of fact, it was thought that money, uh, people with money were blessed by God. People that had wealth were blessed by God. So they were esteemed more favorably than perhaps some of the lower classes. But James is teaching us here in chapter 2 that there should be no favoritism, no partiality at all in the church. That's what he's teaching us here. That doesn't exist, and it, does, it shouldn't exist in the church for one reason. It shouldn't exist because God has shown no favoritism or no partiality toward us. God didn't go out and, and save one class of people. But that salvation is open to all, rich, poor, slave, free men. It didn't matter. And, you know, this was at a time where there was, there was pretty wide uh, partiality and favoritism uh, shown in there in, in that respective time. There was favoritism or partiality that went against Gentiles, right? Gentiles were viewed less than Jews. Samaritans were few, viewed less than Jews. And this was culturally accepted. But even if we look at the law of God going back to the days of Moses, we see that favoritism and partiality um, was forbidden. In Deuteronomy 
chapter 1, verse 17. Listen to the words of Moses. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and great alike. You shall fear man, for the judgment is God's. And in the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me, and I will hear it. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of persons and is not partial regarding the gospel of grace. And you know what the proof of that is? The proof of that is all of us here today. I look around and we see people that have different ethnicities. We probably are people of different economic status. We have different professions. Some may be more educated than the others, right? But yet we're all here under the gospel of grace. Why? Because God is no respecter of persons, and neither should the believer. And we even see this in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Look how he describes the sea of believers, as John describes the sea of believers. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love that scene. I love that scene. And I can't wait for that day, honestly. John describes it so beautiful, a great multitude. It's a great multitude. It's a number that nobody could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne of God, worshiping God. This is a picture of what the church is, what the church is. All ethnicities, all social statuses, all those who, were, who had lives, you know, terrible lives before that were, you know, maybe their past was nothing like our past. Maybe it was 100% worse, plus the person that didn't have a past, if you would, but came to Christ repentant as we did. In short, James verses 1 through 4, in short, commands against favoritism and the conduct of favoritism in the church. And now as we turn to James 5 through 13, James expounds upon the consequence of favoritism. And so we look at it in verses 5 through 15. James is going to make two critical applications regarding this issue issue of favoritism and partiality. Both are based on the consequences associated with them. And these two applications can be defined simply as this. Number one, favoritism is based on evil motives and is usually directed at wrong people. Favoritism is based on evil motives. And secondly, favoritism or partiality is sinful and it does not reflect the character of God. This morning in Sunday school, we just started to embark on 
the nature of God and the character of God, and we'll be doing more of that um, over the coming weeks. But one of the things when we look at the nature of God we begin with, we must begin with the nature of God is this, that God is indeed holy. And if God is indeed holy, therefore there cannot be any partiality or favoritism with God. So let's look at the first application. Favoritism is based on evil motives. Look with me at James 2.5. He, uh, he says, listen, my beloved, well, I'll pick up from four for context. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? After using the example that James used of a rich man walking into the gathering of believers, right? And the initial response was, oh boy, the gold-fingered man is here with the fine clothes and everything. Hey, come up here. I'm going to give you the best seat in the house. And then right after that came a poor person, what we would probably call a street person, who came in, who the only thing they owned was the very thing they were wearing. And the response of those gathers were, well, you know, go over there or sit in the back or, or whatever. We'll find you something. Here James says in verse 4, he goes, Have you by making that distinction become judges with evil motives? And that evil motives there is judges with evil thoughts who follow. It gives the meaning of following with a perverse opinion. It's not a right opinion, it's not a just opinion, it's not a moral opinion, it's not an ethical opinion. No, it's a perverse opinion. And his point here is there's, there's no place for that in the church. The New Testament teaches us to esteem each other as, as better than ourselves. Romans 12.16 says this, Be of the same mind one toward another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. This is gospel teaching. Did not Jesus display that on his ministry on earth? Did not Jesus go and tend to the lowly of the lowly? Look at the ministry of Jesus. He tended to lepers, the ultimate outcast in that day people who had to live outside the city, people who if they came near within people, they would get stoned. They had to at 100 paces shout out that they were unclean so people knew that they were lepers. And yet Jesus goes and touches the lepers. He heals the lepers. Did not Jesus bring the gospel to tax gatherers, to prostitutes, to the woman caught in the act of adultery, those who would have been terribly discriminated against. And yet Jesus loved them and brought the gospel for them. There's no room in the church for partiality. There's no room in the church for favoritism. Philippians 2.3 says this about what is the appropriate attitude to have. Paul writes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. I love this. 
Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Oh man, if that was practiced, churches would be revolutionary, wouldn't they? That we would have humility of heart. That we would not think more of ourselves than, than we ought. That we are to think of others as more important than ourselves. Favoritism is directly against the benevolent heart of Christ in that Christ showed no favoritism toward any of us. Therefore, we are not to show that level of distinction or differentiation or partiality toward others. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, James writes, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, in this context, if you are partial to the rich, if you are partial to the well-off, and those who are esteemed in this society, the point that James is making, going back to that illustration of the rich man, James is making this point. They're usually the ones who contradict the teachings of Christ. And to take it further, they're usually the ones that will be legally contentious, or the ones that are going to drag you through the court. And James makes this statement, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Now, that does not mean that James is saying, if you're poor, you're in. If you're poor, you're saved. That's not what he's saying. But at that time in the first century, a large portion of the church was comprised of the poor. And it was comprised of slaves. And the point that Paul is, uh, that James is making here is that traditionally it's not the poor, it's not the slaves that are going to persecute or prosecute you in the courts. Who is it going to be? It's going to be the wealthy. It's going to be the ones of higher esteem. The ones that supposedly you're showing favoritism toward. And because of that culture, many in that day did esteem people of various classes. And you know what? When we think about partiality, when we think of favoritism, it is usually a result of a fallen heart. That fallen human heart. That sinful heart that gets so easily impressed with external things. And gets so impressed with outward appearances. But we know that's not God's heart. 1 Samuel 16, 2. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees man not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't that amazing? You could have the most impeccable resume ever. 
you might have the most pedigree degree. You may have attended some of the finest schools. You may have recommendations from some of the finest people in the world. But yet when it comes to the worship and the service of God, God doesn't look at any of that. God looks in on the heart. What do our hearts testify to God about? Are we men and women who truly love our God? Are we men and women who truly desire to do God's will as it is revealed to us, as it is written in the Scriptures? Can we humble ourselves to esteem others as more important than ourselves? Can we rejoice with the wealthy and rejoice with the less fortunate? Can we not only have good times with the healthy, but be there for the sick? To follow Christ involves service. Service involves sacrifice. Sacrifice warrants inconvenience. Serving Christ isn't done on our table according to our schedule, on our calendar, but there are many times when we're called to serve Christ where we are going to be inconvenienced, and rather than murmur and complain about the inconvenience, we are to be able to say, praise God, I have another opportunity to serve. I have another opportunity to forgive. I have another opportunity to minister to a brother or a sister. I have another opportunity to bring aid to a respective person. This is how the church is to function, ministering to one another. Why? Because you're more important than me. And because of the love of Christ that has been shed abroad in my heart and in my life, and every believer should have this heart, we press on. We press on. Listen, it's been many years I've been in church. There have been so many times that I've had so many different experiences, some experiences that I'd like to forget, some experience that brought me to the, brought me to the point saying, do I want to continue to do this? But I press on. And I know you've had those experiences, and you pressed on. Why? Because the love of Christ controls us. It controls us. There's no room for partiality or favoritism in the church of Christ. And the church of Christ is not in the business of dishonoring anyone who comes seeking Christ. All are welcome. Rich, poor, healthy, sick, all are welcome to come to Christ. And James makes this point abundantly clear by considering what the Scripture states in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Speaking again, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that royal law that he's referring to clearly is the Scripture. It's God's law. And James here quotes from Leviticus 19.18. By the way, it's considered 
one of the two commandments that are at the heart of the, of the law. The first one is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which states, And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. We've talked about this before. That is a lofty, lofty, lofty commandment. That is not to be taken lightly. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. We pray time and time again, Lord, remove those shiny objects, remove those distractions from the world that contend for our affections and honestly contend for our worship. We're to worship none other than God. Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. That's the first one. The second one is found in Leviticus 19.18, just as we read. It is these two commandments that Jesus in Matthew 22.50 says this, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Notice that. These are the two commands that Jesus quoted. That you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And oh, by the way, that begs the question, right? Who then is my neighbor? As we saw in Tuesday night Bible study as we were studying the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? It's anyone in need. Who is my neighbor in this fellowship? It's all of you. Who is my neighbor? It's all of us. We cannot afford to be independent of one another. We cannot afford to be people that don't care between Monday and Saturday what happens to the other person. If there is a need, we are to respond. And so who is our neighbor? Anyone who has that respective need that I can minister to. And therefore, if we are following that royal law, that holy scripture, those commandments of God, there can't be any room for favoritism or partiality in the church. Let's look at the second application. Favoritism is sinful. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Here in verse 9, James makes it abundantly clear, abundantly clear that favoritism is sin. Abundantly clear. And those who practice such things are convicted as transgressors. So we need to answer two questions. Question one, what does he mean by sin? And question number two, what does the word of God mean when it speaks of a transgressor? Well, sin, the Greek word harmatia. And it means, you may have heard this, um, this definition, it means not hitting the mark. Not hitting the mark. 
You're missing the mark. If you think of bulls, if you think of archery or you think of the rifle range, you may have a target downrange a little bit, and you want to go for that bullseye. And you pull back that bow or you pull back that rifle and you sight it and you're focusing in on the bullseye and you release or you fire and your bullet or your arrow goes astray. You miss the mark. But when it speaks of sin, specifically it is referring to missing the mark of God's righteousness. That's the mark that's being missed. It's missing the mark of God's righteousness. When these folks were showing partiality to one person versus another, in effect what they were doing was committing a sin. And what was that sin? The sin was missing the mark of God's righteousness. So here in verse 9 he says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin. That's what he means. You miss the mark of God's righteousness. But what does he mean when he says, you are a transgressor. A transgressor. A transgressor refers to somebody who deliberately violates the law of God. He deliberately or she deliberately violates the law of God. The best way to sum up a transgressor, uh, transgressor in contemporary language? A lawbreaker. Remember those old westerns? Well, we'll get them lawbreakers that are come through here. It's a lawbreaker. It's someone who perpetually violates the law of God. And it not only means to violate it, but it actually has a more aggressive meaning. It means to trample upon the law, to show no regard for the law. And James, in calling this out, emphasizes that believers in Christ are not called to be violators of the law of God. But rather, we are submit to God's law. And we're to live in God's law. You know, one of, we, one of the greatest blessings about the Word of God is, number one, it is so rich. It is so deep. And if you spend a lifetime studying the Word of God, the Holy Spirit reveals to us more and more about the character of God. And as we see more and more about the character of God, we are actually being made aware of God's holiness. And the more we're seeing God's holiness, the more we become aware of our own inadequacies and our own sinfulness. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's not a reason to panic, right? The Word of God is very clear. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. And 1 John 1.9, but if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all sin unrighteousness we have an advocate with the father the righteous jesus christ if you're a believer in jesus christ your sins have been atoned for they have been paid for so we don't have to live our lives tippy-toeing around every situation say did i commit a sin i hope i didn't commit a sin did i commit a sin but when we sin 
because we will sin, we bring that sin and we confess it before the Father and we repent of it. And it is done. Believers are not to live as violators of the law. But believers, rather, are to live in submission to Christ. And it's a beautiful thing in salvation, by the way. Maybe you've had this experience. If you're saved, you're in Jesus Christ. But there's a beautiful thing in salvation because through the process of regeneration and through the active working of the Holy Spirit, who abides and lives within all believers. That work is conforming us day by day into the image of Jesus Christ. What do we mean into the image of Jesus Christ? We're being conformed to Christ. We're being made holy in Christ. I know that when I first got saved, when the reality of of Christ became a reality in me, The person that I was the day after is not the person that I am today. But I am certainly not the person I was before. And over the years, God has fashioned and molded me, and I'm sure this is the testimony of of everybody who's a Christian, how God fashions and shapes us and molds us into the image of Christ. I'll speak for me personally, but there's many times I could look back on my life and think about some of the things that I did before I was in Christ. And I say, who was that person? It almost seems like it wasn't me. As if it was someone I didn't know. But it was indeed me. It was the old me. Man who was driven by his own desires and his lust and his anger and his emotion and all the other different things. But now I could see the hand of God as he shaped my life, and I'm so thankful for this. James goes on to say that not only is favoritism sinful, but by doing it, we would violate the character of God. As I mentioned before, God showed no partiality to anyone. And we are reminded time and time again that God chose the foolish of the world to confound the wise. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. Things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. Listen, there was no merit in us. There was no good in us before Christ intercepted our lives and saved us. God did not respond to goodness in us. God responded to sinfulness in us. And he gave us his only son. And that is the heart that believers should have for all people. When we deal with others, how can we then show favoritism and partiality to any after God's mercy 
to us. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. In verses 9 and 10, James makes this point by reminding the church of the very law of God and our guilt before him. Even though outwardly we may not have broken all of the commandments of God, because we have broken even one, we were guilty of breaking them all. And are we not then guilty before God? And what was God's response to us? What was his response? If we were transgressors under the law of God, what was God's response to us? Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Love this. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You follow James's thought here? Did Christ only save the rich? Did Christ only save the religious? Did Christ only save the poor? Did Christ only save the Jew or the Gentile? Where is favoritism in salvation? There is none. God's mercy is for all who call upon the name of the Lord Knowing this, James is able to state in verses 12 to 13, so speak, so act, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here James closes this section with an admonition to consider how serious This sin is. James calls believers to live their lives consistent with their words. You hear me say this all the time. Our commitment to Christ should match our confession for Christ. If we call ourselves Christians, we ought to live as Christians. We are not to live as the rest of the world. The question then becomes, why should a believer so act and so speak, as James says here? Because our lives will be judged by the very word of God. Our lives will be judged by the gospel and the law of liberty. The gospel is indeed the law of liberty because it frees us from the dominion and the bondage of sin in our lives. Good works do not produce salvation. Let me say that again. Good works do not 
produce, it does not result in salvation. Nobody is going to stand before the Lord and the Lord is going to add up their good works and he's going to go, okay, for good works, I got 4,800,365 and for bad works, I have 3,400,000 and whatever. Your good works outweigh your bad works. Hey, you're in. Not going to happen that way. There's only one thing that atones for sin. That is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is only by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. By the way, we always emphasize the alone. Why? Because there's nothing else that could be applied, nor is there anything else that we could entrust ourselves to that could save a soul. But good works are the evidence of salvation. See, you don't get saved and then nothing happens. You don't get saved and you keep it to yourself and nobody knows that you're a Christian and you're this secret hidden Christian. No, works of righteousness follow the believer. Now, some may have 50, some may have 25, some may have two, but every Christian has demonstrable works that bring glory to God. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul makes this abundantly clear, abundantly clear. He states we are his workmanship, Christ's workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God had foreordained that we should walk within. Hey, believer. Hey, Christian. We're called for good works. And the good works don't all look the same. They may look very, very different. Your whole life you may invest in one person and you may demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ to that one person and you may pour yourself through the Holy Spirit into that person showing the grace and the mercy of the love of Jesus Christ. And that will testify to the glory of God. Or maybe you are able to bless hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands through good works that all bring glory back to Jesus Christ. Favoritism was not one of those good works. Favoritism was a sin, and it was a sin that had to be dealt with in the early church, and James, like a, like a, like a master father, comes and he deals with this, exposing this sin and casting it out. Look at verse 13. It says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Who are the merciless? It's the unbelievers. The ones not concerned with the will or the word of God. The ones who show no mercy to anyone. Their lives are solely concerned with their own own desires. Let me share something. The believer knows 
that God's mercy was demonstrated on the cross of Calvary by his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And it is this mercy that triumphs pending judgment. So as we wrap this up, a few things we want to consider. We see here through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit that James has shown us two truths regarding favoritism and partiality, as I first stated. Application one, favoritism is based on evil motives. Application number two, favoritism or partiality is sinful and it does not reflect the character of God. By the way, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. The character of God. How do we reflect the character of God? James' admonition is now that I've told you this, so act and so speak. Abide by it. Abide by this truth. You're going to act that way. You're going to speak that way. And he reminds us to live a consistent Christian life. You know, we might use expressions like, do you walk the walk? Or this person says one thing, but they live another way. Very popular word today is the word hypocrite. That person is a hypocrite because they say one thing, but they do another thing. God's grace never gives us liberty to live our lives as we please. Instead, God's grace gives us the power, the power to overcome sin, favoritism, partiality, and it gives us the power to obey the Word of God and to live the Word of God. We just sang that in our third song, did we not? Yet not I, but Christ in me. The question for us is, is there favoritism and partiality with us? And that's a personal insight that everyone has to make, and I pray that that would not be the case. One of the things I'm always thankful for this church is that whenever we have visitors that come to this church, it's almost unanimous. The, the sentiment that is said is, boy, everybody was so kind to me. Every, I, I felt so welcome, right? And we, didn't, we don't care. We don't look at the color of a person's skin or whether that ethnicity. We don't ask for W-2s or a 1099 to see how much they make, right? It doesn't matter who comes through that door. All that matters is, we want to reflect the character of Christ and kindness and graciousness toward that person. So the question is, does it reside in me? And if it does, believer, that's something to repent of. Now I want to just share something else. Starting next week, we will begin to study one of the most critical and controversial passages in the Bible. That's James 14, uh, 2, 14 through 26. And this is this teaching regarding faith versus works. Faith versus works. And this passage is the dividing line between the historic Protestant church 
and other churches worldwide. And the issue at heart is, are we saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone? Or does good works play a role in our salvation? We're going to move very slowly through this passage because it's very, very important we understand it. And it's very important that we come out of it with the right doctrinal content. That's critical, that we come out of it with the right doctrinal content. But the other thing I'm going to share with you is it will challenge you. It will challenge you as to where you stand with Jesus Christ. And that is good. That is good. And so as we approach this, we want to be men and women that come with our hearts open, our minds open, that the Spirit of God would open our ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. Because at stake is the historic doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith. That is simply that I trust Christ, finished work on the cross for my eternal salvation, and I bring nothing else to the game. All I brought to the cross was sin. What I got walking away from the cross was God's righteousness. So I think this is going to be a real blessing for us as a church, and just pray that God would give us wisdom, and that his spirit would speak to our hearts. Bow with me in a word of prayer.